If you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, uh, it is a different text, not because we got it wrong, but because at the last second uh, I felt compelled to change it. Uh, We're still preaching on the love of God, but uh, what I'm going to be doing is preaching out of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you would turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. See, in our Reformed tradition, uh, we preach what's called uh, expositional preaching, meaning verse by verse, unpacking that uh, so that God sets the agenda for what we preach. Now, that doesn't mean we can never do a a topical sermon. Uh, we're, we're, We're doing a topical sermon series here. But nevertheless, no matter what text we preach from, we're always preaching that text. Because it is God who is speaking, it is God's ideas, it is God's truth, not what we want to come up with. So actually, as I unpack this text for you, we're we're going to be focusing primarily on seeing the love of God in this parable. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have no idea how loving you are. And even in our day and age, as we champion that word love, yet how loveless we really are. We don't know a love like yours, and we're asking the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us your love, the love that is seen here 
in this parable, even as we are convicted greatly of our lovelessness. But Father, we know that it is good to us, good for us to be crushed by the law, to come to an end of ourselves, to then depend upon Christ who has truly loved us. And so would you take us through those, those motions this morning, and as you do so, may you transform us to begin to live a life of love for you and love for each other. Do so through this means of grace. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. In 2011, NBA player Lou Will was in his car and he was approached by a lone gunman who was seeking to rob him and presumably take his car. Interestingly, in this scenario, when the gunman approached Lou Will, somehow, some way, Will was able to persuade this guy to not rob him. But then he did something astonishing. Instead of calling the cops to report this, he took this guy to dinner and paid for his own dinner. He did something absolutely crazy. This guy was just wanting to kill him, essentially, and take what he had. And he says, you know what? Let me buy you dinner. I don't know about you, but uh, that'd be hard for me to do. You see, what we need to see in this parable is that it is primarily about the fact that we are not loving people, but God is the God of love. This parable is not about activism. Our culture is so big about activism. This parable is not about that. Do not turn the gospel of grace into a system of works. It is about the graciousness of grace and the God who is love, even and especially when we are not. You see, actually what is happening here and what needs to happen to us is that we need to be like the lawyer. We need to be crushed by the law of God. We need to be crushed to see that we are actually not loving people so that then we can be bound up and healed by God's love in Christ for us. We need to learn to be solely dependent upon His grace and empowered by His grace so the purpose, really, of this parable here is to crush this man and then to show him the endless love of God. So if I can give you a little turn of phrase here, something that might be sticky and memorable, our main point this morning is this. We try to kill Jesus, but Jesus takes us out to dinner. We try to kill Jesus, but Jesus takes us out to dinner. Look at verse 25. What is the law of love? You see, one of the things we need to see here is that we are the lawyer. Look at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer was, was someone who would be constantly examining Jesus to see if he would uphold God's law. And we are like that lawyer, and we're trying to see if Jesus is really faithful. And if Jesus is not faithful, the moment we see him not being faithful, we're going to move behind the scenes to crucify him. So this is what we want to do. We want to put Jesus to the test. And so we approach Jesus in a legalistic way. And we come up to Jesus and we say, Jesus, or really teacher, what shall I do to inherit 
eternal life. We approach Jesus in a legalistic way. What is legalism? Legalism is us constantly asking, what must I do? What must I do to be good enough? What must I do to finally rest? It's about us doing. See, essentially what we're asking Jesus, as we are this lawyer, we're asking him, what must I accomplish? What must I perform in order to legally receive eternal life? What actions need to be done in order for God to owe me salvation? That's what we really want. We want God to owe us rather than to stand at his mercy. We have an obsession with doing. Believers and non-believers, we are always asking ourselves the question, are we enough? What have we done? That's what We ask ourselves every night we go to sleep, we review our day, and we say, have I done enough? We wake up the next morning and we say, what all do I have to do in order to make this day good? You see, but we often forget, like this lawyer, we forget that you can do a lot of things and still lack a lot of love for someone. We can live... A life constantly trying to undo the past, but still lack love. See, the problem with us and this lawyer, the problem is that we trust ourselves too much. The audacity that we have to come to God and say, what can I do to earn this from you? We have no idea what we're asking. See, oftentimes when we develop this worldview, this type of mindset, it leads to to two different reactions. One is despair, the other is self-righteousness. Oftentimes when we trust ourselves that we can actually do something, we try it and we fall into despair. And essentially what we are saying is that we're we're saying we should be better than this. But then there's the self-righteous and maybe we begin to outwardly do some things and what we're saying is that We can be better than this. The problem is that there's too much of us. That's one of the fundamental problems of our sinful nature. You see, like a lawyer, we might be curious about what we could actually do to inherit eternal life. But more than likely what's happening here is that we're trying to trap Jesus so that really we can crucify him. Because we really don't like grace. We like works. We love, don't we? We love to turn the tables on God so that we become his judge. We love to say things like this, I can determine who I love. I can determine when I love them. And I can determine how I love them. We love to build our own towers of Babel. Interestingly, Jesus, he plays the game with us. Look at it. Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Uh, There's a joke that says, uh, the question is, why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? And the answer is, why doesn't a rabbi answer a question with a question? Jesus says, how do you read it? Now, here's what he's not saying. Jesus is not telling us, well, what is your truth? No, no, no. What Jesus is asking us is this. 
the way that you read it, is it accurate? There is only one truth. But the way that you are reading it, your hermeneutics, the way that you are reading God's love, is it accurate? Jesus, notice this, he's not giving us five easy steps. He's not giving us 12 rules for obtaining eternal life. He's not giving us seven highly effective strategies for getting to heaven. But rather, he's pointing us back to the scriptures. And here's actually interesting. What, interestingly, what happens, look at verse 27. And here's, here's how we answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. That's actually kind of scary. Hey, you are right. Turns out, we have the correct answer, but just because we have the answers doesn't mean we have the life that's living that out. What does it mean to love God? Jesus is telling us in his word that we are to love God with wholehearted, unchanging, unshifting, perfect devotion to God. When it says all, this word for all is actually a different word that is normally used for all. This word for all means complete, whole, entirety. It's actually used in the writings of Homer when it's talking about uh, an entire loaf of bread, not leaving one crumb out. In other words, it's the word for flawless, perfect. Jesus is saying, do this. Do this and you will live. My friends, what we need to remember because we are this lawyer is this. God is demanding perfection. He is. He says be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's never going to say that doesn't matter. The question is this. Are you going to try to fulfill it or are you going to rest in someone who has? You see... What we need to remember is as we look at the law, it demands that every single one of our secret thoughts, every word we've written or texted or said, every picture we've looked at, every feeling we've had towards someone, every moment as one have lived in perfect faith, every relationship with perfect love, patience, and wisdom, every desire perfectly consistent with God's character and will, the whole thing all the time, that's the standard. Do this and you will live. We are to love our neighbor as ourself, including the neighbor who may even live right across the street from us who parades the LGBTQ signs right there. That's your neighbor. Love them. Do this and you will live. That's what he tells us. Not any other way. It's do it God's way or don't do it at all. What does the law require? This is what is asked in the New City Catechism. Question number seven. What does the law require? It requires personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. That is the requirement. Whenever we try to fulfill God's law, it's like this. It's like we have a broken ankle. And when we're sitting down, we don't really feel it. We think we can manage. And we say, we look at God's law and we say, I can get up and do that. But then when you try and you stand up on that broken ankle, you realize it hurts bad and you can't do anything. 
Jesus plays the game with us. And here's what we do in response. We try to justify ourselves. <laughs> it's actually crazy. Why do we even try this with Jesus? But we crave. Here's what we do. Look at verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself. Here's what we do. We crave to be in the right with God. That's what it means to be justified. We crave for our conscience to find peace. And so here's what we do. Like the lawyer, look at verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Oh boy, you best watch yourself. You're going you're to learn today, as one comedian says. You see, we often like to redefine God's commandments, and we're doing that in the church today. We love to set up boundaries for who we love and when we love them and how we love them. Boundaries is a word we love today because boundaries makes us have our own kingdom and no one can cross those lines. So whenever we see some of these people that I'm about to name, we don't like to love these types of people, the people who are political opponents or the people who we have interdenominational differences with, different ethnicities. The literal neighbor uh, in our neighborhoods, our roommates, our family members, our spouses, our children, our parents, those who aren't actively anti-racist or those who have fully embraced the woke culture, those with narrow and outdated sexual ethics or those who define their sexuality however they want. If they disagree with us, we will not cross that boundary and they better not cross this one. That's what we do. We love to find ways to water down God's commands so that way we can look at God and say, you owe me. But Jesus confronts us with the law of love, and that's where this parable comes in. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him. And departed, leaving him half dead. You see, leaving him half dead, it, it means that by all appearances of this man on the road, he would look as good as dead. Do you know how dead men were treated in Jewish culture? They were what? They were unclean. You see, who in the world, who of us would want to contaminate ourselves to help him? But that's the picture that Jesus is painting. And here's what Jesus does. Here's what he's doing to us. We are the lawyer. You see, as a lawyer, we would know that the Jewish people were divided into three categories. You were either a priest, a Levite, or a Jewish person. And those were your neighbors, no one else. You were either a righteous Jew or an unrighteous Jew. Those were your neighbors, no one else. And so naturally, when you began a parable with a priest and a Levite, you would expect the third person to be a Jewish person, not a a Samaritan, we'll get to that in a second. But this lawyer, this is who we are, we think we're, we're loving. We think, <laughs> we think we stand a chance. And so Jesus is saying, okay, look, let me paint you a picture of what you're really like. The priest and the Levite, they're different, but there's similarities. And they represent the best of the best in Jewish culture. Jesus is essentially saying to us, you think you are noble like the priest and Levite, but let me show you what your heart is really like. One rabbi famously had said back in that day, according to Jewish tradition, they, they contracted 
uh, uncleanness, even if their shadow so much touched their body, the shadow of a dead man touched uh, their body, and that's why they would pass by on the other side. You see, the priest and the Levite, it's actually really important to remember, they lived off of other people's generosity. They lived off of, off of the tithes and the offerings that people would give to the temple. Interestingly enough, this Jewish man, he's presumably Jewish, he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, most likely coming back from the temple where he just was. The priest and the Levite would no doubtedly have just received the benefits of this man's tithing. And yet when they see him, they pass by on the other side. This is often who we are. We are the priest, the Levite, the lawyer. And we love to look at people like this. And when we see whatever their uncleanness is, and we'll talk about that in a second. We love to say, this is not my neighbor. It's not my responsibility. It's not worth my time and effort. It's not worth my religious reputation. Is this man even worthy of my help? This person needs to change or they need to prove their worth before I help them. That's what we say. In our culture today, we also say this, say this, well, this person has made me uncomfortable. Therefore, I won't help them. How often? How often in this mindset do we remove ourselves from any situation that makes us feel any level of uncomfortability? And there's nothing like deadness that makes us feel uncomfortable. We talk so much about love today, y'all. We talk so much about love today. But in our culture, how much hatred, division, and anger we have towards others when they don't, when they don't hold our exact standpoint. We say we're loving people. We don't know anything about it. We are much better at tweeting and texting about someone than talking with them. We're very good at that. Even in their, their non-Christian book, The Coddling of the American Mind, talks about the, the modern education culture and talking about uh, even colleges. They say this, a culture that allows the concept of safety, a culture that allows the concept of safety, safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to grow strong and healthy. But like the priest, when people make us feel any level of uncomfortability, we put up boundaries and we don't let anyone push those. You see, yet again, we talk so much about love today, but we are so self-obsessed. That's why we often love taking our own personality test over getting to know someone, because we care more about what do I need to be, what do I need to do. We need to sit in the seat of the lawyer and hear Jesus crush us with the law. That's what we need. Let's ask some reflection questions. And this is hard, y'all. I felt, I, felt I felt it this week, big time. But let's think about this. I'm just going to name many different things. Does our writing, our blogging, our tweeting, our texting, our social media, 
our everyday conversations, our work relations, our parenting, our marriage, does it promote true love for our neighbor? Or does it promote division? Prejudice, distrust for each other, suspicion, bitterness, or holding the past over people's head. If we're honest, the worldview today is the latter. And here's the thing, we have enabled that. The woke culture today is the most loveless culture. And yet we have contributed to that. Jesus is essentially telling the lawyer this. For you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God as seen in his law, and you have no chance of inheriting eternal life. Jesus says again in Matthew 5, 43 to 44 and verse 48, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. My friends, this is not a small problem. The problem with our lovelessness is that before God we will be judged, and unless we have atonement, we will be damned. We will be cursed. This is not a small thing that we can just fix with a little bit of help. We need salvation because we have tried to kill Jesus. But there is good news. Jesus takes us out to dinner, doesn't he? We'll be eating some pizza right now, right? We try to kill Jesus, but Jesus takes us out to dinner. You see, Jesus is actually doing two things here as he begins to describe uh, this parable. In two ways we can see Jesus here. We can see Jesus as the dead man, and we can see Jesus actually as the Samaritan. And here's what we need to hear. We need to hear that we are actually not very loving people, but we need a loving God who loves us despite our lovelessness in order to be transformed to love people. Amen? We've got to see the love of God. There is no other way for us to be transformed. First, we need to see that Jesus is the dead man. It's interesting that Jesus describes this man as, as being stripped and beaten and they departed from him, leaving, leaving him half dead. Because actually these Greek phrases would describe what Jesus himself would actually go through on the way to the cross. He'd be stripped. He'd be beaten. And they would put a wooden splintery cross upon his back. And they left him as half dead until he eventually was dead. <laughs> you see, we think that we love God, but we need to ask ourselves some questions. What did we do when we saw that Jesus was born? Here's what we did. In Matthew 22, uh, verse 16, we were like Herod, and we sent an order that all the male children would be killed. What did we do when we saw him minister the gospel to us? We were like the people in Luke 4, 29, where it says, and they rose up, and they drove him out of the town, and they brought him to the, to the edge of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. That's what we did. What did we do when we saw Jesus gathering those despicable sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, the people we would never want to be around? We were like the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they could destroy him. What did we do when we saw Jesus on trial beside Barabbas, the murderer? Matthew 27, 22, Pilate said to them, 
Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? And yet they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. That's what we did. What did we do when we saw Jesus stripped and beaten? We were like the people in Matthew 27, 29 through 31 who saw him on the cross where it says that they mocked him, they spit on him, they struck him, they led him away to be crucified. And what did we do when we saw Jesus taking the wrath of God for the sins of his people on the cross? Matthew 27, 39, those who passed by derided him wagging their heads. That's how much we love. But my friends, how loving is Jesus? Jesus does not love because it's easy. Jesus loves because he is love. That even from all the way in eternity past, he decided that literally through hell and high water, I will save my people. Nothing can separate them from my love. Father, I know I will have to take your wrath upon the cross, but it is worth it because I love them, not because they're worthy in themselves, but because I have chosen to love them. And because they did not earn my love, they will never lose my love. Amen? That is the love of Jesus. He took on flesh. He entered the dangerous road. He fell among the hands of sinners. He spilt his blood. He became unclean on the cross. And he willingly suffered to save us. This is the love of God for you, my friend. What kept Jesus on the cross? I love this question. The Puritans would often ask this question. What kept Jesus up on the cross? His love for you. John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But not just for his friends. Romans 5, 8 and verse 10, Paul says this, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, his enemies, that is when God loves you. Listen to this. What you and I need to hear is this. We have done nothing to earn God's love. We did everything to earn his wrath. And yet in his love, he has placed it upon us. And my friend, if you come to Jesus Christ, when you still struggle with your lovelessness, is God going to now look at you and say, I just I can't deal with this person anymore? That would be absurd. Infinite love is infinite love. Eternal love is eternal love. God cannot but love infinitely and eternally. And if you have Jesus Christ, you have the infinite and eternal love of God. Amen? Always. Especially when it doesn't feel like it. I remember my high school football coach, before a big game, he was a, he was a very big guy. And he walked in the locker room, it was very quiet right before this game, and he very rarely gave a pregame speech, and he decided to, for this game, and it was very quick, and he said, men, there's going to be one thing that's going to keep us together tonight, and it's that three-letter word, love. One of my good friends, Zach Shaw, was sitting in his locker, he, he goes, He's like, what? He didn't get the number right. 
Uh Because love is spelled L-O-V-E, but the point's still the same. Love is what keeps us together. Love is what brings us to God. Love is what God keeps us with even when we are most loveless towards him and towards each other. It is his love. Jesus is the dead man. Jesus is also the Samaritan. Those despicable Samaritans, what were they like? Here's what they were like. When Samaria went into exile, Assyria had brought in Gentiles to repopulate the land by intermarriage. A big no-no. The Samaritans became despicable among the Jewish people. They were the half-breeds. A group of people, the Samaritans were, they were a group of people who believed that they were the true descendants of Israel and the true keepers of the Torah. They would worship on a different mountain, Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans believed that the the, the Jerusalem temple and the priesthood were illegitimate. I'm sure they were best friends, right? They had their own copies of the Pentateuch and they rejected the authority of the other historical and prophetical books. When the Jews prospered, they claimed to be the true Jewish people. And when the Jewish people were in trouble, they disowned them. They were pro-Roman empire during the first century. And they received Roman favor. Think about that. They desecrated in AD, in, in one, one year between AD 6 and AD 9, they desecrated the Jewish temple during Passover so that no one could enter. One rabbi famously said, he that eats bread, the, he who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of pigs. Pigs for Jewish people were unclean. Samaritans were excluded from the Jewish temple. Samaritans were not allowed to be witnesses in court. Samaritans were the unclean. They were the outsider. One of the most heinous disses or Insults to Jesus comes from John 8, 48. When people describe Jesus, they say, you are Samaritan, and it's paralleled with this. You are Samaritan, and you have a demon. That's how much they felt about Samaritans. There was never such thing as a good Samaritan. It was the oxymoron. It would be like describing this, the good Hitler. That much of an oxymoron but Jesus is saying this Jesus is saying I am willing to become the most despised the biggest outsider the most unclean the one that you will hate the most I am willing to become that to save you I am willing to become that because I love you that's what he's saying The Samaritan noticed that, look at verse 33, it says, but the Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and it says, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, this is amazing, because actually in the Gospel of Luke, this this progress of seeing and then feeling compassion is used by Jesus a lot. One of the best examples we have of this is in Luke chapter 15, whenever the father sees his despicable son turning back, and remember it says, he saw him and he felt compassion. Jesus is saying, when I see you in all your deadness, in everything that makes you unclean, I have compassion on you. When I see you in the worst of your sin, if I can give a trivial example, please forgive me, but it's like the movie Elf, 
You remember when Buddy the Elf is trying to hug the raccoon? And the raccoon just scratches him up. But let's be honest. That's exactly what we want to do with Jesus. The moment he gets near us, we claw and we push and we want to cut him. We want to put him on the cross. But he moves towards. And that's what the Samaritan does. He doesn't just feel compassion. He doesn't just say, oh, man, I'll think about you. Or, man, I'll pray for you. He moves towards. Verse 34, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. If something, this man is extravagant. He moved toward him. That's what true compassion is. You see, often when we feel the most unclean, in our sins that are so despicable, we often think that God does this. I don't know if I really want to be associated with you, but here's what he does as Dane Ortland describes. When he sees the worst of your sin, he moves toward. That's how much he loves you. He binds up this man's wounds, meaning that he bandaged up this man's wounds. And you have to picture it this way. I remember one time we were on a, <laughs> we were on a class field trip and on the way back in the middle of downtown Montgomery, we had seen this dog in the middle of the road that was hit by a car. And my dad's a veterinarian and so this was kind of a common thing in the Van Hooser household. Uh, we would have just spare leashes in the back or the backs of our car because of this. Well, when you see a dog hit by the car and there's blood all over the road, and literally for this dog, there are intestines that are hanging out. Can you expect to not get bloody? That'd be crazy. This man is beaten so bad that it basically looks like he's dead. Do you think that somehow this, this Samaritan is not going to get bloody? He says, look, it's worth it. It is worth it to become unclean so I can save this person. Jesus Christ doesn't just come amongst our blood. He literally spills his blood because he loves us so much. Amen? He binds up our wounds. Jeremiah 30 verse 17 says, For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal. Because they have called you an outcast, it is Zion for whom no one cares. But what the Lord is saying, look, even though no one else cares for you, I do, and I will bind you up. This is sacrificial love, my friends. He gives him oil and wine that, that, at least in those days, would have been seen to help the wounds. But even more importantly, they were used in the temple. No doubt, the original hearers, when they hear about oil and wine, their minds are drawn to the temple. And here is what Jesus does. Do you know how he binds up your wounds? He dies for you, and he spills his blood upon you. And by the blood of the sacrifice, you are healed and cleansed. Because he is the true Passover lamb. You see, this Samaritan, like Jesus, he, it would take him time, effort, resources, just everything he had. Jesus Christ left the infinite riches of heaven to become a man in poverty because he loved you so much. You see, Jesus is saying, look at this Samaritan, the one who you hate the most. I'm willing to become that so I can love you. That's incredible, right? He even gives this man two denarii, which would be three weeks worth of food. Because here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not just going to love you so that you can be converted. I'm going to give you so much that you can be healed. Jesus doesn't just love you to the point when you become a Christian. Then he says, all right, now be a good boy, be a good girl. Do this and you will live. No, no, no. He says, look, it is done. The entirety of it, that's how you can live. 
that love is what transforms you to love the most despicable people. Amen? We try to kill Jesus, but he takes us out to dinner. A young boy saw an old lady walking down the street carrying her purse. And when he approached her silently from behind, he attempted to steal her purse. But quickly, the old lady grabbed him by the scruff of his neck. But instead of turning him into the police, she took him to her home. She made him sit down in the living room while she cooked him a meal. She left her purse on the table open next to where he sat, but it was her kindness and her love that kept him curious and made him stay rather than grabbing it and running. She gave him a feast and sent him away fat and happy. On the way home, he was stunned at her generosity and love, and it was that generosity and love that made him come back. Isn't this what John says in 1 John four nineteen? We love because he first loved us. Do you want to love God more? Drink in the love of God for you. Do you want to love other people more? Drink in the love of God for you. Not some other system, not some other ideology. How much we have hated God, how much we have hated our neighbors, but yet those are the exact people who Jesus Christ invites to himself. The racist, the prejudiced, the sexually immoral, the bad spouse, the unfaithful spouse, the abandoning parent, the promoter of division, the self-centered, as despicable as they can be, the person who in our, t- in our culture, the worst person today is the person who is not the anti-racist, that person is invited to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He takes you in. And he transforms you to love people truly in a gracious way. That is what you can have when you come to this Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that by your mercy and by your grace that you would make us a people who truly know your love, who abide in your love. Lord, there's so many different definitions of love today. We're asking that we would be re-centered upon what your word says. Jesus, no one loves us like you love us. and Help us to drink that down, to sing it out to believe it, to rest in it, and to show it to other people. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.